So we're in the, one of the most iconic chapters in the whole of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. And we're going from verse 26 to the end of the chapter today, which if, if chapter 8 is iconic, these last verses, the last half of the chapter, are kind of even more iconic in, in that uh, super uh, chapter of God's Word. It's very familiar territory to us, and in my prayer during preparation, I asked for something fresh, and I think I have something fresh. It's certainly fresh to me, and I, I just try and pass it on uh, today to you. And it's about the context of Romans 8. It's one of those passages of Scripture that, quite rightly, we take as a standalone and celebrate it. And even uh, one-off verses like, like verse 28, we take as a standalone version. And I'm not saying that's not appropriate to do because I think it is. But one of the benefits of going through uh, the whole book as we are, you start to see these very iconic verses in their context. And what was fresh to me is Romans 8 is in the context of suffering. And it's the kind of suffering that leaves us lost for words. It reduces us to what the verse describes as groaning. We've all been there. Some of us might even be there today. Where our suffering, and it might be health, it might be concern about others, it might even be persecution. I was quite struck by one of the comments that Giles made last week, that Christians will always be at odds with the world. And it seems to me that even in our time and day, we, we often think, well, we don't know what persecution is. And, and that's true, we don't really. But it's getting progressively close, I think, as we become more and more at odds with um, the worldview of things and persecution is part of the suffering that's talked about and as I say it's the kind of suffering that leaves us lost for words and reduces us to what the passage describes as groaning we'll come to that I have four key messages the first is <coughs> our partnership with the Holy Spirit specifically in relation to prayer when we don't know what to pray for because the struggle we are having is so severe. Second point is something's going on behind the scenes which is a, a wonderful thing for us to consider and it's happening under the sovereign purposes of God and we can't see it but we can be confident it's going on behind the scenes. The third point is a, a beautiful God's eye view of me and for you, a God's eye view of you. And the fourth point is living in conviction, sorry, living in the conviction of the truths of the gospel. Our title in the breakdown we have is It's All for God. I have a subtitle and it's Living in the Love of Christ. That's really what our message is about today. I have a, a key verse before we, we read it. We, we read the passage, and it's verse 37 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We are more than conquerors, and it's because he loves us. You know, the simple message is, God's love for us is so complete that he'll not let any harm come to us. Even though we suffer to the extent that we're lost for words. Um, and the, the message is, logically, if God loves us, why would he allow us to come to harm? He won't. And it's about seeing suffering in that context. Let's, um, let's read the passage from verse 26 onwards. Another thing to look out for, and we won't have much time on this at all, but look for the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, working, can I use the word collaboratively, working in unity together in our case. So Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spur his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our first um, key point is our partnership with the Holy Spirit and his role in our prayer, our prayers. And we get this from verse 26 and 27. In the same way, uh, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Just pause a little bit with that statement in the same way. When we read that, of course, we have to go back to the, the previous passages that talk about the Holy Spirit. And whatever was said there, in the same way, what comes next applies and my eye went back to verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Anyone who 
has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, is a child of God and receives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit testifies um, that we are God's children. He testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. So if ever I have a doubt, and of course, because life goes on around us, we're perhaps subject to doubting sometimes, and the Holy Spirit is there, and he's testifying that to my spirit that I'm a child of God on the basis of what Christ has done. In the same way, he helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. In the same way, he helps us in our weakness. It's specifically in relation to prayer. And it's not, I don't think, applicable to all prayer. I think it's applicable to those prayers where that we don't know what we ought to pray for. And um, that's not always the case. There's lots of uh, instruction in God's word about what we should pray for. And, of course, we have the Holy Spirit prompting us in that context. But Romans 8 and verse 26 and 27 is about the role of the Holy Spirit in our prayer life when we don't know what we ought to pray for because our suffering is beyond our own words and beyond our expression. It's trying to think of examples where we don't know what to pray for. And there's some classic examples um, Illness is, is a, a very obvious one. Do we pray that God will deliver us from our illness? Or deliver us in our illness? By that I mean keep our faith strong um, through the course of the illness, which might at some point lead to death. That's a, a real dilemma, isn't it? We want to uh, pray according to God's will, but we don't know what to pray for. And of course, when those... Um, situations are very close to home then we're reduced to groaning um, it's interesting this word groaning is is used three times in the chapter one one about the creation groaning one about ourselves groaning and here uh, in verse um, 26 it talks about apparently the holy spirit groaning a groaning it, it speaks of of um of suffering, intense suffering, were, were reduced to that. And I, I wonder whether it does mean that the Holy Spirit is somehow reduced to that uh, low point in, in human experience. I actually don't think it does, but we'll come to that in a second. So he helps us in our weakness. And it's in the uh, context of our sufferings and it says that he intercedes for us of course um, the, the spirit of God uh, verse 17 and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit who is it that searches our hearts that knows the mind of the spirit well surely the only person who knows the mind of the spirit is God himself and he's the one who's searching our hearts and then the Spirit intercedes for the saints in, in accordance to God's will. We struggle to pray because we don't know what God's will is. 
and the Holy Spirit who knows our hearts and he knows God's will, he's able to take our groanings, our lack of, of um, words um, and intercede to God on our behalf. And the consequence is we get relief from the struggle that we're going through. I think that's just a, a wonderful thing for us to celebrate. And it's a role that the Holy Spirit has in our experience when we really do run out of, of things to say ourselves. And he's the interceding for us, if you like, translating our groanings, the feelings of our own suffering into something that um, is appropriate as he knows the will of God. That's something for us to reflect on. Second point was about things going on behind the scenes. And really this is encapsulated in the iconic verse, which is verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Just like to kind of deconstruct the verse a little bit. We know that's a, a, an expression of supreme com, uh, confidence. And I want to suggest there are three things that um, contribute to, um, in this case, Paul's confidence about what he knew and what he didn't know. And those three things also translate to our confidence in what we know. And the three things are first, the truth. That is the promises of God. We read the scriptures and we know. Because God said it, it's true, so we know it. The second point is our faith. We have to trust in God. And as we trust, um, that is a, an expression of our confidence. And the third point is our experience. We know based on the truth of God's word and his promises. We know by faith and we know by experience. Isn't it interesting how faith is proven by experience? So as we get older and as we have more of life's experiences, we look back and we can see, yes, that is where uh, God carried me. And it was an act of faith, but it's now been substantiated by our own experience. Just an expression about Paul saying, we know um, in all things, now here's a, quite a challenge. I, I was in a, a prayer meeting with overseers, district overseers recently, and I, I quoted Romans 8 and 28 and was celebrating in my prayer that um, all things work together for good. And I was challenged afterwards, do you really think it's literally all things or could it be something else? Verse 22 and verse 23, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The context of the all things seems to me, and on reflection, to be coming back to suffering. So 
Um, it's the groanings of creation, which is a consequence of a, a sin-damaged creation. It's our own groanings who are a new creation living in a damaged world. And the context, therefore, is all of these things, the things that cause us to struggle, um, will work together uh, for good. We have to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, of course. So I think it is appropriate for us to pray and to say that all things work together for good to those that love God and not just restrict it to the context here. That's why it's appropriate often to be able to take a verse out of context and still to apply it so long as we're not upsetting any biblical principles in the process. So in acknowledging God's sovereignty, we can say that he's in control of everything, so all things um, do work together for the good. Let's go to that. God works for the good of those who love him. You know, first of all, let's clear up this point about those who love him. Who loves God? <laughs> it's those that appreciate God's love for them. It's, it's disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who've been touched by his love. We love because he first loved us, as John said. Um, all things work together. Uh, so in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And my mind goes to Psalm 23, of course. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's a, a statement about the shepherd character of God and his ultimate desire is for our, and purposes, is for our goodness. Um, in the, the remembrance this morning, I was also in Isaiah, sorry, in Psalm 145, which speaks about the goodness of God, verse three. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Ian was quoting that this morning as well. It's a very um, common expression throughout God's word. God has our goodness um, as his focus for us. We know that in all things God's work, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Often we, we miss out that last expression, um, but that's part of the wonder of this uh, statement, that those who love God, that is those who've experienced God's love's love first and have acknowledged it, are called according to his purposes. I don't know whether we think often enough about the, the amazing truth that I feature in the purposes of God, my life, my talents, and my sufferings. They feature in the purposes of God. 
as nothing happens to me or to you that are a surprise to God, that are outside of his purposes. My mind also went to Ephesians 2 and 10, another very familiar passage, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's something for us to wonder at, um, that I feature in the purposes of God, um, and it's something for us to um, be challenged by as well. Am I engaged um, the way I should be in seeking out the purposes of God in my life and fulfilling them? What are they? Uh, we go to verse 29. Um, the purposes of God in me are that I might be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the, the heart of it. It's the purpose of me living. It's the purpose of you living. That because of the transforming work that Christ has done, then um, I'm on the path to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Let's go there to uh, verse 29 and 30, which is a God's eye view of me. This was our third message. Me as one called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Someone has described it as, as like a, an unbreakable golden chain from eternity to eternity. It's the will of God for me in my life. The ultimate goal is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And it's made possible by the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we have a little list here of the truths of the gospel, each one being a, a weak study in its own right. And some of them were just left in awe um, at the mystery of it all, but uh, pre uh, were predestined. We are conformed or transformed, if you like, in comparison to what we were, we are called, we are justified, and we are glorified. You know, for, for us, there is a, a future context of this, when we will be fully conformed to the likeness of his son, also described as being glorified. And that's, that's um, something that starts today and find its, finds its conclusion in eternity. But we're thinking about a God's eye view, aren't we? And of course, God is outside of time. So from his perspective, these things are a done deal, already happened, were uh, conformed, called, justified, glorified. Something that is the stuff of our hope. Let's go to our fourth key message and um, I had it as living in the conviction of the truths of the gospel and it's verses 31 to 38. For the sake of time, we won't read those again. But um, just go to verse 38 to start with. Um, Paul says, I am convinced. That's a, I think it's a, a, a verse that we were looking at at uh, Computer Advice a, a couple of weeks ago. 
and I, I was stopped in my tracks by that expression. Um, Paul said, I am convinced. And what is it that convinces us? It goes back to those earlier points about the truth of God's word, about our faith and our experience. Um, the, the challenge is, what, what am I convinced of? Um, do I have doubts? And I think the, the message here is, as we avail ourselves, appreciate the, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and avail ourselves of it, so we progressively become, become more and more convinced. That was Paul's experience. Um, the challenge um, is, what shall we say in response to these things? And at first glance, there seem to be six rhetorical questions. By that, I mean questions that are left hanging. But I think there is an answer given. We'll come to that in a second. The six, question, uh, the six questions are, if God is for us, who can be against us? Question mark. How will he not graciously give us all things? It's another question. Who will bring any charge against us? Who will condemn us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I think the answer comes to these things in verse 37, which is our key verse. No. With the exception of um, how, how will he not graciously give us all things, the answer to all of the other questions is, 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 is nothing can. And um, verse 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. At the start, I was saying the message is simple. God's saying, I love you. Here is how I've proved it. Why would I want any harm to come to you? It's, it's very simple. Um, and we are more than, with that perspective, through the most difficult times of, of suffering, when we're reduced to groaning because we just seemingly are, are struggling to that extent, we can be, with this perspective, more than conquerors, and it's through him who loves us. And then Paul delivers a, a wonderful punchline about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Uh, and it's constant, and uh, it depends on um, our understanding of his love being just unconquerable um, by any other means, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, no, neither any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. It's such a, a wonderful, uplifting passage of scripture and finds its, its home in our experience when we are struggling. In a, a fallen world, even objects of God's love are subject to suffering. That's the reality of our experience. I just wanted to conclude really with that quotation that's given in verse 36, which is from Psalm 44. As it, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's, it takes us to... Um, 
John 16 and 33, in this world you will have trouble. That's what the Lord Jesus says to his disciples. I was um, struck by the expression, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I've been thinking of God's eye view. I think when, when it says we are considered, it's, it's what others observe about what's going on in our lives. At the moment, we're going through a study of Job with brothers and sisters in Myanmar. And that's all about Job's conviction of um, what he knows and understands about the goodness of God. And he's able to separate that from his experience of suffering. And those who are observing, they, they say, you must be really bad, Job, because of what you're going through. And he's saying, no, it's not like that at all. You have a, a similar verse. It's a very familiar verse, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Speaking of the Lord, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we, that's the, the Jewish people, uh, considered him, observed about him, that he was stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. You know, that's um, perhaps a common view when um, people who don't appreciate who Jesus is and don't appreciate the God of love, they look at what's happening to Christians and they consider that you know we're being punished or something and that really absolutely is not the case because uh, god's purposes are working behind the scenes so let verse 28 and verse 37 be the anchor for our soul and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who live love him who've been called according to his purpose. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Shall we pray?